All right, so it is Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration Sunday is always the Sunday before Lent begins, and is always the story that we tell of a change in Jesus' ministry. We're in a year where we primarily read from the Gospel of Matthew, and so like all important things in Matthew, it takes place on a mountain so that we know that Jesus is the new Moses. Pretty sermon on a mountain. Transfiguration on a mountain. We're going to have a lot of mountains. Actually, this may be the story of a change that takes place after a change. See, this story is going to begin with six days later. The six days is later than the first time that we are told Jesus tells his disciples that, quote, he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering and be killed and be raised. It seems like, well, for six days there has been just kind of an awkward silence, or at least there is in the text. Almost as if the disciples had been pretending that they didn't hear Jesus. And so for us today, listen. Our reading today is from Matthew 17, starting at verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So maybe go back to memories of some of those people that you just named before, those people who have changed for you. Maybe the story of meeting them for the first time. Or maybe seeing them in that new light from a distance to start. Maybe you have seen them being their best selves, succeeding at some endeavor, showing you some new gift or facet of them that you've never quite seen before, drawing your attention to them through the pure gift of who they are. You draw closer still. You have these moments, right, where you see people in a new light and they almost kind of 
stick out from the background. You draw closer still. And then maybe it's in this memory or story, or maybe it's some other story. You touch. What changes in that? Amazing things happen in this transfiguration story. Signs and wonders, as the saying goes. But it does feel like the disciples are trying to reach past what's really important. Easy enough for us to say, I don't know about you, but I'm easily distracted when my friends glow. And maybe a little bit more so where clouds and big booming voices show up where they weren't there before. But then actually, I don't think the disciples are distracted. I mentioned the real beginning of this story is six days earlier with those terrible pronouncements of Jesus' predictions still ringing in their ears. I think these disciples are not distracted. I think they are laser-focused, focused on how Jesus' holiness can be an escape hatch from all the messiness and awfulness of human sorrow and pain that he has started sharing with them, that he is here to participate in. Through much of the narrative, they seem to think that things are going their way. They are on a mountain, away from all the dangers and uncertainties of human life together. All of y'all who you know are hikers, I'm not one, tell me of those feelings, being up on the mountaintop, being away from it. They're away from all the dangers and uncertainty of human life together. Away from Jerusalem. Away from empires. Long lost prophets appear in a radiant vision and they talk as peers of the Jesus that they love. A cloud surrounds them even further, transporting them out of the real world. You can't even see it anymore. A voice from the heavens. Maybe this is their life now, right? Just ecstatic reverie with Jesus and with God. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. This is a story of all sorts of glorious sights, but it is a touch that transforms the story. From one of holy removed to one in which the holy draws close and small and quiet and gentle enough to touch us. It is another moment like the Sistine Chapel, right? God reaching out to give the spark of life to Adam. Yes, there is holiness, but it will only be truly understood through humanness. Touch does transform things, right? For good or for ill, it marries those two things, holiness and humanness, Sometimes this is something we long for, sometimes not. I remember a beloved friend whose daughter died shockingly and suddenly. She came to church that Sunday, but she came late and sat in the back, and she left early. She repeated that pattern a few weeks, just enough that eventually I just kind of quietly noticed it. 
she just said, you know, church people, they'll want to hug me. And I just don't want anyone to touch me. If they do, I'm afraid I'll fall apart. Sometimes it does feel like touch undoes us. From the perspective of the disciples today, it undoes the illusion that they are longing to create, that they can sit at a safe and comfortable remove with Jesus away and apart from all the human pain and injustice that he is so sure that he has come to transform. So for my friend, at one level, those early days of grief were like a little place outside of the world. And if someone were to come and touch her, it would burst that. And there would be all of the holy and sorrowful reality of that grief there in the real world to be dealt with and contended with. But that does happen, and it does actually transform that experience. So we need to tell stories of how divine touch arrives in the touch of another and can transform pain into new life. I've been really appreciative of the the Green Teams series that they've been doing. So this past Wednesday, Sue Inches, who is someone who's worked in state government at various levels for a while, but now devotes her life to advocacy... She came to tell us about how she had felt called and called to call others. She teaches now at Colby and Bates, I think, about this work to advocate for the environment. What most stuck out for me was just the way in which she talked about advocacy as work. What she landed on, because maybe I'm a little too cynical about talking to politicians, She said that advocacy was just the process of letting the stories of your heart touch the lives and the heart of decision makers. When a shining light and a mysterious cloud and a booming voice won't do it, maybe, just maybe, it is the shocking realism of human touch, a real human life saying, this impacts me. This is my life, my hurt. My hope, that touch can wake us up to the truth. The green team uh, also showed a film in which I was reintroduced to an old friend of mine from another congregation. Becky was a corporate lawyer initially, and among her chief clients was the Texaco Corporation. I think she, like many of us, if there was a faith component to her thinking around this, had absorbed a way of thinking in which following Jesus was kind of an escape hatch from the world. We don't really have to think too much about this creation. Many of us have probably absorbed some of that theology, right? That doing the right things and following Jesus is about getting out of this physical world. And so the consequences get real lowered versus... Jesus really has come to transform this world, our experience of it. Only in retirement did Becky start to hear and see some of the ways in which the fossil fuel clients she had had were impacting the environment and the climate around her. 
But still, it wasn't until one weekend she goes down to D.C. to visit her son. She never tells me the story of the actual moment that it happened, but it was in visiting her son that she realized that that weekend was a 350.org protest outside the White House, about tar sands in particular, I think. And a little bit encouraged by this experience of being close with her son right there, she worked up the gumption to go to a training for those who were going to protest. And Becky, good lawyer for Texaco, got arrested in front of the White House. (laughs) She came back and said, I got to have coffee with you. I said, okay, I don't know what's going on. She sat down and said, I just got arrested. I said, this is going to be the best coffee I've had all week. (laughs) That bit of touch or human connection with her son, I don't know what the mysterious thing was that encouraged her into that jumping off point. The rest of her life has been advocacy for the environment. So we need to look for the ways in which we make this holy and human connection, the ways in which the touch of one life to another can transform these experiences. The folks at Maine Needs know this story, right? To meet people in a time of need for the most basic things in life is always to meet someone at a turning point, some crossroads, someone who may be deep in all the mess of human sorrow and pain that so many of us know. And to show up Bearing what they need is a chance to touch that life, show them that God is in this uncertain moment hanging in the balance and that there is yet something holy and wondrous that can start here, in this new apartment, in this new season, in this new job. Human life can draw near and can show God's presence through this small moment of touch. It's a chance to say that holy love is not something off in the distance or on top of a mountain. It is real, and it's here, and it can be touched and felt. This story of Jesus' transfiguration is always the penultimate moment before Lent. It's always here letting us think on this kind of tangent moment where divine glory and human connection meet. I think it's there to challenge the ways in which we have built walls between these things, human sorrow and holy radiance. Those walls are our own construction. And all the story that we tell through this season, through Lent, through even Jesus' desertion and betrayal, through a cross, through a tomb, into new life, this is not a story of God sectioning off what is holy and worthy from what which is human and undeserving. It is the story of God's love overflowing all those borders and boundaries we would try to construct. As the old hymn says, O love, how vast, how flowing free, that God a human form should take and mortal be for mortal's sake. How will you look for ways to invite the holy into the most human moments of your life this season? May the touch of the divine awaken you to listen to and follow our living and reconciling Christ. Amen.